we've been talking about finishing well. Um, First Timothy, I mean, Second Timothy. Um, just an overview about the concept of finishing well. I know when I hear finishing well, there's equal parts excitement and there's equal parts fear. The excitement comes from just the picture of of seeing our Lord and Savior, seeing our Heavenly Father, and, 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 them, and Him saying, Hey, son, you've done great. You've done well. I mean, the joyous occasion, the fulfillment of, yes, I made it. I mean, I look forward to that day. But the fear comes when I'm thinking, do I have what it takes to make it? And I think that should be the reaction of every single one of us. There's a sense of honor and awe, but there's an equal part sense of fear that, that you're, you're thinking, man, do I really have what it takes? Or I really want to have what it takes to make it. And that must be the same question that Timothy had on his own heart when Paul wrote Second uh, Timothy to him. I mean, he has a royal heritage and legacy by his spiritual father. He's leading this thriving church. And he's thinking, I really want it, but do I have what it takes? Now, Paul is making sure that Timothy's life does not become a cautionary tale. Paul has people leave him left and right. So he's given Timothy some very specific instruction to make sure that Timothy finishes well. In chapter 1, Dr. Ron talked to us about the importance of spiritual fathers and mentors and other men around us to keep us accountable. And last week, Dr. Barron, in chapter 2, talked about uh, having the qualities of a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer to finish well. And this week, we're going to delve into chapter 3. Paul is warning Timothy against those who have fallen away from the truth. Today we'll talk about that you finish well by making sure that you're remaining in the truth. So the question is, why is being in the truth important to finish well? My question to you is, how do you even finish well if you don't even know what the truth is? You don't even know where the finish line is. You're running, running, you go off track. You see, you see a Dunkin' Donut, you start going this way. And next thing you know, where is, where are you in the finish line? You think about some of these suicide bombers that's causing havoc all around the world, right? They're literally giving up their lives for their cause. However, at the other end, they're not hearing good and faithful servant. You end up running for the wrong race. You're battling for the wrong team. You end up serving the wrong cause if you're not in the truth. You know, a couple months ago, my wife and I went to a marriage retreat. Uh, it's in Shipshawana, Indiana. It's about an hour away or so from here. So we start driving. We start going at it. You know, it's like the first weekend that my wife and I are, are, get, to, get to be with our kids. So we're enjoying our time together. We're driving. About an hour later, I'm like, hey, babe, check the GPS. Or about half an hour away. I'm like, that's kind of weird. It should be just about an hour away. We should be almost there. I'm like, okay, whatever. Just keep driving. 15 minutes later, check our GPS. Now we're 45 minutes away. I'm like, you got to be kidding, right? Like, you know, as any other man, I, I don't know. For me, when that happens, I... <laughs> What I should have done is turn around. Um, but what I did is I drove faster. Because <laughs> I'm just willing my car to get there, right? I just want to get there. Come on, go, 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 get there, and so forth. So we kept going, and then I started getting more and more frustrated. Eventually, my wife was like, do you want to go to Ohio instead of this marriage retreat? So eventually I turn around. Some, something about keep going validates my gas and my time. Even though I'm going the wrong direction. Um, but anyway, eventually we turned around. We made it to marriage retreat. The last person there, um, before, right before the dinner closed. Um, 
So the key is don't drive faster. Listen to your wife. Turn around. Um, but have you been there before in which the faster you go, the further you get from your destination? The harder you work, okay, the more focused your run is, the further you are from your destination. And that's what happens when you're not in the truth. You might be running a good race. You're running the wrong race. Back to Timothy's times, the church is growing fast, but so is heresy. You know, Ephesus is right next to uh, Greece. All kind of ideas and theology and philosophy is coming out of that place. Paul, like any good church father, knows that the attack the church is under. So he wants to make sure Timothy remains in the truth. The question that we need to ask ourselves is how do we know we're in the truth? How do you know you're listening to the Holy Spirit? How do you know that's not your own voice? How do you know that you're in touch with reality, especially when everyone else in the world might be telling you you're crazy? With so many convincing and well-studied arguments and debates around, how do you make sure that your moral compass is still pointing north? How do you know that you're not living in the matrix? How do you know what you see and what you touch is real? These are profound questions that every Christian who's interested in running the race well must ask themselves. The good news is Paul gave Timothy some profound guidelines to make that distinction. So I kind of broke down Second uh, Timothy chapter 3 into four guidelines for Timothy and for us to make sure that we are remaining in the truth. So if you go to Second Timothy, um, it starts out with this. He says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will, lover, will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. If you keep going on, he's saying, um, also the teachers oppose the truth and so forth. Um, so let's do a little examination of Paul's list. Now, the first thing that jumped out to me was that the reason for the terrible times is not because the stock market crashed. The reason for this terrible time is not because of global warming or some natural disaster. The, the reason for these terrible time is because of the wickedness in man's heart. Paul's going on through the list, and you think he's just talking about, like, the world, everyone out there, and so forth. But then you start examining a little deeper, you realize he's actually talking about people in the church. So even some who position themselves as teachers. So somehow the spirit of this age has gotten in the church and start to close itself with religion. So he first mentioned about lovers of themselves. You know, the people who love themselves, their number one goal is self-preservation. These men are survivors. They'll do whatever it takes to make sure they come out good. There's no sense of loyalty, allegiance, anyone or any ideals. But the problem with this is, yeah, you survive. But what do you survive at what cost? You know, I want to survive too. But I don't want to survive the cost of my conscience, to survive at the cost of my friends, my principles, my ideals. For the Christian, survival is not the end goal. It's what you're surviving to do. And then he jumped to the second part. Um... Lovers of money. Now, uh, Pastor Aaron mentioned this a little bit earlier. Um, and, and I just want to be clear. I believe God is a good father and he wants his kids to be prosperous. He wants good things and he wants to bless us. So wealth and prosperity in itself is good. 
But balance this out with what Jesus said about wealth in Matthew chapter 6. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You want to see this demonstrated in today's culture? Look no further than corporate America and big business today. And the bullying of Christians to accept lifestyle that's contrary to their faith. Look at what happened in Indiana last year with the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Everyone, all these corporations popped out and said, we're going to boycott you if you're going to, unless you force Christians against their conscience. Look at what's happening in North Carolina and Missouri right now. And I was praying during that whole crisis. I'm like, what happened? Why is all these big businesses who I, you know, buy things from all of a sudden popping their head against something to me is common sense. And the Lord showed me, he says, when your bottom line, your number one priority is profits and money. And I'm not saying all business, the the bottom line is all money and profit. But I'm saying when it is your bottom line, your number one priority for your company is profit. You can't help but find yourself on the opposite, opposite side of God. You can't help but find yourself despising God, just regardless of what's coming out of the marketing department. So, money, if you worship money, if you make money the number one thing, you can't help but be divided against God. Now, look at what he said in Matthew nineteen twenty three. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. In verse 26, Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Now, Jesus never said you can't be rich and walk in his kingdom. But he did said was it's really, really hard. How hard? It's supernaturally hard. However, when God supernaturally touches us, he molds our heart and our character he shapes this vessel for prosperity and wealth so that we could be representative of his kingdom. See, many of us seek wealth. That's a good thing. We should seek wealth. However, we must seek him first and let his Holy Spirit transform us so that we can have the character to handle a lot of money. My son is two years old. If I give him $1,000, do you know what he's going to do with it? He's probably going to eat it. Or he's going to rip it. Why would God give us a lot of money if all we're going to do is eat it or rip it up? So, yes, pray for prosperity. Pray for blessing. However, pray first that God give you the character to be able to handle. That's that's a prayer we don't want to pray. So the, then, then Paul goes on through the rest of the list, boastful, proud, unholy, and so forth. You know, And one of the things he jumped that pops out to me, he says disobedient to parents. And, and it's like, well, that's kind of random in there. You know, you talk about all these deep sins and the disobedient parents. Well, I'm not going to go in detail about, you know, when is appropriate to disobey your parents or whatever. I think he's talking about spirit of this age, which is basically says you don't need to be, this age says you don't need to be accountable to anybody. No one can tell you what to do. I mean, even the church is basically like, hey, mentor me, but mentor me when I want to be mentored, you know? Keep me accountable, but keep me accountable when I feel like being kept accountable. Lead me, but lead me when my heart is is willing to be led. You know, I, I just, I don't know about you, but for me, rarely do I wake up and be like, hey, you know what, today I feel like some good correction today. You know what, I'm going to go ask for some rebuke today. It just doesn't really happen. And most of the time when I really need a rebuke, I don't feel like a rebuke. You hear what I'm saying? And then going to the last thing on the list, he talked about lovers or pleasure. And this is challenging for me. I don't know about you, but I love me some pleasure. 
I mean, I think, well, I think of pleasure. So when things are rough, kids are screaming, work is hard. I think about my honeymoon. I'm sitting on the beach with my wife next to me in the sun. I'm reading a good book. And someone says, hey, would you like some more mango smoothie? Yes, I would. Thank you very much. Bring me more mango smoothie. So I love me some pleasure. I love, I like pleasure. I like relaxing, all that stuff. However, I understand pleasure is a double-edged sword. It's like money. If you're not careful, it's going to come and eat you up. I thought about my deep need for pleasure and comfort, and the question is, how much pleasure is enough? How much luxury is enough? I remember when I was in college. Okay, I let you know, in college it was an interesting time. It was a time in which I kind of let the pleasure, the need for pleasure and comfort and, and enjoyment, just kind of entertainment, just kind of go. So for me, I play video games all day, all night. All day, all night. I remember during exam time, the exam was like 7 o'clock in the morning. I remember this vividly. I still remember the desk and the computer and all that stuff. Um, it's 3 o'clock in the morning, the night before. Well, actually, it's the morning of. I haven't studied at all. It's differential equations. I have no clue what that any of that stuff is. And I said to my buddy, one more level. One more level. I mean, it just doesn't end. One more level. One more hit. One more, one more dollar. One more whatever. One more, one more, one more. This is it. This is not an anti-pleasure, anti-prosperity sermon. But the tough question is how much pleasure is enough? How much money is enough? You know, yesterday was a sunny, beautiful day. I took my son. You know, my wife and I, we just really want to bless my son. We took my son out uh, and made the morning all about him. My son's two, by the way. So he... Um, so in the morning, we took him to the park, played on the swings, rocked him out, just, just had all kind of fun. Then we took him to Chick-fil-A, chicken sandwich, gave him ice cream, all that stuff. And then we took him to Toys R Us, bought him a good fire engine truck. I mean, he loved it, all that stuff. He came home, he played, he just enjoyed himself. Then he took a nap, and he got up. And then you know, he was playing with his new toys, and I had the, I had the ball game on TV. He's like, he's like, I want to, he basically is like, I want to watch Mike. His show, he's like, truck show or whatever, truck something. He wants to watch his TV show. I said, no, son, I, daddy's watching right now. You can play your truck. And he started pouting and whining. And, man, I start preaching to him like he's like a 20-year-old. I'm like, son, you will not be a spoiled brat. You're a man of God. You need to learn to appreciate, you know, this morning is all about you. I mean, he, he probably what he heard was blah, 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 blah. But you know what? I was preaching to his spirit. I was like, son, you will not be, you will not, because this will destroy you. I mean, what the Lord told me is if you keep doing this, he won't appreciate anything. It will destroy him if you let this go. So I nip it right then and there. And I understand from that human nature is if you keep giving, man, that, that need, that desire, that flesh will never satisfy. So I sent him in the corner. <laughs> and then I hugged him. Um, contrast this to a, a guy I read about. This guy is a business owner, a very successful business owner, but he said to one day, he said, you know what? This much money is all I need to live. If the business become more profitable, make more money, I'm not going to take any more. Eventually what he did, he signed the company over to God. He actually made a legal contract. He went to attorney, signed the company over to God, and he became an employee of his own company. He took a salary. Now you might be like, whoa, that's crazy. It is kind of crazy. But this guy knew he put a check on his desire for comfort and for luxury for money. He just says, I don't need more than this. And there's great reward in being able to be, be able to do more with less, you know? Yeah, you love to live, stay at, you know, the five star hotel, but God calls you to go sleep on the floor of a gear in Mongolia. You say, Hey, yeah, I can do that too. No problem. I can do, I can do, 
Paul says, I can do with plenty, I can do with, with less, I can do all things through God who's, who, who strengthens me. And look at the United States today. The most prosperous nation in the world, a worship of pleasure and comfort has caused all kind of mess. And speaking of, of partnership with God, this, this nugget that the Lord dropped in my spirit, the true check on our desire for pleasure and money and entertainment, all these different things is if you know and you, you find your true, your greatest pleasure in your relationship and your partnership with God, you will never get sucked into that hole. But, but like example I share, I share earlier, um, like my son, look, so last night after all that stuff, you know, it's it near his bedtime, he's playing and I'm just sitting on the couch. He came on the couch, he grabbed his blanket, he grabbed his pillows, he came on the couch and he sat with me. He wanted to spend time with me. And I thought about it. I said, you know what? That doesn't happen because he attends his dad's church. That didn't happen because I read some Bible verses. There's an actual intimacy between me and my son. That he actually enjoyed me more than he enjoys his new, you know, truck, his TV shows. And I thought, you know what? I wonder why a lot of these men or women, whoever, these Christians who end up falling to these desires of the world and so forth because they lack that, they never have that true intimacy with their Heavenly Father. That true intimacy with your, you can't be faked. It just can't be faked. Because at the end of the day, you need to truly find pleasure. Pleasure is not faked. You need to find that greatest pleasure with your Heavenly Father, and that comes through intimacy. So again, at the end of the day, how do you keep yourself away from that spirit and remain the truth? Intimacy with your heavenly father. Which goes into even intimacy with your earthly father, which is complete, something completely different I can't even go into right now. So number one, you gotta examine yourself against the spirit of this age. Number two, Paul says these guys have a form of godliness, but denying its power. We need to make sure our lives demonstrate real godly power. So the question is, what is the most powerful force in the world? Let me explain to you from the high school's perspective. So the geeks in the high school says the most powerful force in the world is the power of the atom. It's nuclear fusion, the nuclear fission is where we get the power of the sun, the nuclear reactors, and nuclear bombs. The nerd says that the, the absolute most powerful force in the world is the creativity of the mind. To write, to create, to construct, all these different things. The cheerleaders will say the most powerful force in the world is the power to influence people, popularity, charisma, to lead people, to cheer people. The jocks will say the most powerful force in the world is to compel others through force or through threat or violence to make somebody do something that they want to do. And then you got the losers. Anybody a loser in high school? You don't have to raise your hand. I was a loser in high school, so I understand this deeply. The loser says the most powerful force in the world is the power to change your identity. Think about that for a second. It's to to change your heart of a slave to become a son. To make somebody evil, good. To someone who's hateful, love. To resurrect the dead heart. To fundamentally change the essence of your being. So I thought about this. How can you have a form of godliness, but not actually tap into the God power? You know, how do you explain something infinite like the power of God, okay, to some some finite mortals, okay? How do I explain the power of the sun and the and the fusion that happens, the complexity of that to my two-year-old? You use very basic examples, okay? In the Old Testament, God taught the Israelites and demonstrated his power that the, the, the prime 
archetype or example of his power was how he led them out of Egypt. Okay, the ten plagues, the part in the Red Sea, like, it's so vivid, people made tons of movies about it. Like, hey guys, remember I'm powerful, remember the ten plagues, remember the part in the Red Sea, power, oh yeah, so that's what power is, got it, okay. In the New Testament, there's another example for his power. In Ephesians, Paul says, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe. It's the same power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the in place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. So the new example of God's power, okay, is how he raised Christ from the dead. And not just raised him to life, but raised him to the highest, highest of the highest, so that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. The resurrection power of God, again, the power to change identity, the power to raise the dead heart to life. That is the prime example of God's power. And this isn't just a demonstration. This power is actually available to every single one of us. How do we tap into this power? Well, Jesus said very, very clear. If you want to live, you must, you must die. In order for you to be resurrected, you must surrender your life and say, this is not about me anymore. This is not about my agenda. It's not about my will. It's not about me. It's about you. You need to willingly lay down your life for the resurrection power to come into to your heart. I believe this is what Paul's talking about, about having a form of godliness, but not having the, the godly power. There are those people who want to do the Christian things. They'll go to church. They'll live a good life on the outside. They can quote the Bible. They might even teach the Bible. They have PhDs in Bibles. But somehow they're still blinded by the truth. Why? Because at the entry point of God's power, at the point of intersection of surrender and death, they said no to God. They still want to do their own thing. Life is still about them. You know, I, I, I think about this powerful illustration uh, someone asked me before. Uh, someone asked me, he said, would you marry a, a girl if she says to you, I will be the most perfect, beautiful, submissive, serving, whatever wife for 364 days of the year. However, for one day of the year, just one, I want to be with my other lover. Just one. It's less than 1% of all the time with you. What would you say? Anybody in their right mind would say, no, no way, uh-uh. Why not? She, she spends 364 days with you and being the perfect wife. You wouldn't just give that one? Right. You, you would say no because that one day she wants to be with this other guy says more about her heart than the 364 days that's with you. Now, if you would say no to that offer, why would God say, say yes to your offer when you do that? God wants all your heart. He wants you to truly lay down your life completely. He wants it all. And when you truly lay everything down, now it comes the entryway of his power, that resurrection power to resurrect what is dead to life. So this is the place of honest examination. How do we remain in the truth? We need to be honest with ourselves and say, hey, is there true power in my life? Do I see the resurrection power of God in my life? Here's a good exercise. Ask somebody. Ask your wife. Ask your husband. Hey, babe, do you think I'm just playing this game? Am I just go is, Do you see a true change in my heart? Do you see the resurrection power of Jesus Christ in my heart? Or am I just going to church? Seriously, ask your spouse that. Ask your kids that if they're old enough. 
Let's not just be an empty shell of a religion. Let's make sure that the true resurrection power of God is in our life. And Paul has a strong words to that spirit of the world. He says, have nothing to do with them. In other words, if you're around that spirit, that spirit will come in and make your, ha- your heart callous to the truth. Have nothing. Guard yourself against that spirit. Okay? So quickly, I'm going to go to number three. Verse 10 to 14, he says, you know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith. You've seen the persecution that's happened to me. You've seen the Lord rescue me. In the end, he says, but for you, continue what you have learned, have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. So number three, how do we know you're in the truth? We need to examine the lives and the fruit of those who are, who are supposed to be teachers. We need to make sure that they're bearing good fruits and what they're teaching you is actually livable. This speaks to discipleship, okay? If you don't ever, if you just, if, if, if discipleship to you is just hearing someone speak on Sunday, okay, this, this does not apply, okay? You need to actually know the lives of those who are actually teaching these things. Hearing me today, you need to watch how I live my life. Do I really have a good perspective on pleasure and money and finance? Is there a resurrection power in my life? If there isn't, then I don't really believe in this stuff. And there's no fruit being produced. My wife is sitting right there. You got to just go ask her after and say, hey, hey, hey is he, does he just preach this or does he actually believe in it? You know, the example I think of, see, I, I think my life is made up with a um, bunch of wisdom or guidelines. Basically, I stole from people who I really trust. And the, the prime example, the first example I can think of is, you know, I lived in the, with, with Pastor Ron and uh, his family for four years, and I stole tons of stuff from them. Just principles, not stuff, but ideas and guidance. So one of the things I, I, I oh, oh, Carrie J came to me and said, don't use steal, use co-op. I'm like, okay. One of the things I co-op from them, um, on Pastor Marion, was, you know, you go talk to Pastor Marion. You're like, well, so what do you think you should, you should do? What do you think I should do about this? Blah, 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 blah. She says, well, what does the Lord say? And I'm thinking, the reason I'm talking to you is because I don't really want to pray about it. <laughs> so I'm like, uh, I, I don't know. Well, let's pray right now. Like right now, right now? Yeah, let's pray right now. So we pray, and she's like, so what does the Lord say? I'm like, was I supposed to be listening during this? <laughs> Oh, you, you actually mean this. Okay. See, a lot of times when people say, hey, I want to pray about it, what they really meant is, I don't really know and I don't want to deal with this. <laughs> no, that she actually means that when she says, and I see her living this out in so many areas, areas of her life. And the first time it's just kind of like, well, that's, are you for real? And afterwards it's like, yes. She actually believes in it. She lives it out. And I see it produce great fruit in her life and her kid's life. So you know what? I stole that one. Say, hey, you know what? I don't want to do about this. That's pray about. That's actually ask the God who created what He thinks about it. I can talk about the other things I've learned or or co-op from Pastor Ron or or from my own parents. The point is, when I see principles, not only preached but lived out, it forms a foundation of who I am. Now, when I was studying this one point, I feel the Lord um, share a nugget about parenting to my heart. I feel like I need to share with all the parents. Basically, the idea is you are always, as a parent, you are always preaching to your kids. Even when you don't mean to preach to them. You're always sharing what is true and what is not true to them, even when you don't mean it. When your kids hear something in church and see it lived out or not lived out at home, 
you are sending a message to them. I'll give you an example. If your kid goes to youth and hear Pastor Aaron say, hey, the word of God is important. Study it, read it, all those different things. However, you go home or they go home and they don't see you actually live it out. You are preaching a message to them saying, hey, the word of God, that truth is not really worth living out. Even if you don't mean to. I mean, when the Lord dropped down my nugget, I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? Like, what are my kids watching? Because we are emanating truth. We are always preaching to them. At the same time, if they hear something preached or hear you preach it or hear uh, someone else preach it and they go home, they see it actually lived out in their life. Now you just form a foundational piece in their, tr- in their lives. Think about my parents. They have priests in me that Sundays for worships. For, we could be middle of nowhere. He will find a church or he will have family worship. Sunday is a day of worship. He preached that in me. Even when I was in college, when I wandered away from the faith, I was doing my own thing. When Sunday comes, I wake up, I'm like, I got to find a church. I don't even want to go to church. I find myself going to the church. Why? Because that truth was ingrained in me. Fathers and mothers, you have a profound and a powerful way in helping your kids finish the race by setting them on the path of truth, by how you live, confirmed with the word of God. So number three is watching the lives of how the, the, the true speakers, the teachers, how they live and see if it's actually livable. And number four, know your Bible, know the scriptures. And Paul says, and from infancy you have known the Holy Scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scriptures God breathing, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You know, we all hear from the pulpit to read your Bible, study your Bible. We all know that. When I was praying for a fresh revelation, I feel the Lord dropped this in my spirit. He says, The reason we don't read the Bible, Americans, Christians, aren't reading the Bible like we should. The number right reason is because we don't see it as sacred anymore. And the reason we don't see it as sacred is because of accessibility. You know, how about you, but I use my Bible app on my phone. And the Lord says, you know, you know my word, the word, my word is not just an app, right? Because in my mind, I start to associate the Bible app with my Kindle app, with my words with friend app, with my email app. And next thing you know, the sacred word of God is just another app on me. Again, this is not anti-technology, okay? The app is great. But the problem with the app is, you know, I used to have to memorize the order of the books in the Bible. Like, turn to Ezekiel, you're like, Ezekiel's before this prophet and this prophet and so forth. Now, I don't have to do that. I just click, oh, Ezekiel, boom, click there. I have all the versions of my Bible reading plan all on there. Accessibility, convenience has eroded my sac- the sacredness of Scripture to me. Now, I'm not saying go out and buy the biggest, bulkiest, most inconvenient Bible and lug it around with you just to, just to teach yourself a lesson. My point is don't let the accessibility of the scriptures to erode how important it is in our lives. You know, think about the countries that do not have access to the scriptures or have little access to the scriptures. Now, Chuck Colson tells a story uh, from his book, Loving God. He tells us the true life story about these um, prisoners of, of war um, from Vietnam Wars. And just the stories of when they were in jail. And you know, they were tortured, they are beaten, they are in the solitary confinement, all these different things. 
And these guys, and under the harshest conditions, will try to pass Bible verses to one another, whatever means possible, to try to encourage each other. They actually invent some type of code, like kind of like a Morse code by pounding on the wall, vertical, horizontally, for each letter, to pass and teach Bible verse back and forth. They share one story, which a guy, uh, a guy who kind of just newly got caught, he would run his uh, cell room to, for exercise, to stay in shape. After he learned this code from everyone else, he started running these weird patterns. So these guys will try to decipher what he's running. And he's actually preaching and transferring the passage of Psalm 125. Where does my, I look my eyes upon the hills. Where does my help come from? Just the, the preciousness of the word to these guys who have no access to the Bible. They talk about, they just beg the guards, can you just give us a Bible? Can you give us a Bible? And one Christmas, the guards gave him a Bible for like an hour. And these guys just pour over, memorize, read as much as they could. Because they treasure the word of God. My hope is that the Christians in America will learn to treasure the, God, the word of God right now. While it is still accessible. And not wait till it's been outlawed in our country to realize how pressure it really is. And one more about studying the word of God. You know... I grew up as Southern Baptist. My dad's a Baptist pastor. Now, Baptists are known for studying the Word of God, right? They're known for the, the Word. I mean, I went to all kind of Bible studies. You know, and also I'm Asian, and Asian people are known for studying. So, I mean, all my life is just Bible study, Bible study, Sunday school, all this stuff. So, I, I feel like I have a pretty good foundation on the Word of God. But even with my upbringing, in this day and age, it is extremely difficult to discern the truth because all the half-truth, all the philosophy gets thrown around. Everybody's quoting the Bible these days, right? Do not judge. They don't know the context. They don't know who said it. They don't know what book it's from. But everyone's throwing Bible verses at you. In this day and age, we need to up that bar for really knowing the Word of God. The example I want to give is the difference between studying for a test and studying for life. You know, when I was in high school, I studied for tests. I didn't care about learning. Can I be real here? Mr. Vassar, can I be real here? When I was in grade school, middle school, high school, I did not care. I just wanted to get an A in that test. I didn't care how the quadratic formula was going to enrich my life. I just wanted to make sure that I got an A plus on that test score. So I studied for the test. I figured out what's probably going to be on the test, and I studied for it. Fast forward eight years later, and I'm in grad school studying for my final thesis. Uh, I got to defend my thesis against... Seven professors are going to rip apart my research, and they're going to grill me and ask me all every single detail. Now I'm studying. Now I'm not just studying for a test. There's no scantron answers to this, okay? There's no study guide for this. I got to know it all. I got to know the context. I got to know details. I got to know how this principle applies to this and this and this and this and this. Because these guys, because I'm studying against opposition. In the day and age we're in right now, we're not studying against some paper test. We're studying against opposition, where is your level of studying concerning the Word of God? Is your level of studying basically reading billboards? That's where you found you get your basis for theology. God saved. Jesus saves. Oh, I got my Bible study done for the week. Or just even the pulpit, here in the pulpit. Or are you on your own truly studying the Word of God, discerning for yourself what is right or wrong, the context, all these different things? There are all kind of resources out there. I mean, be careful of your resources because you don't know who's teaching it, but study a bit on that. Even in the church, we have Bible studies. We have a woman's Bible study a night and day. We, we have war classes that teach New Testament and Old Testament. Don't be discouraged if you don't speak Aramaic and Greek and uh, uh, Hebrew fluently. I don't. But the point is make yourself available to these resources and have a hunger to learn.
So I want to review. I'm a teacher, so I recognize that you guys probably only retain 10 to 15% of everything I just said. Um, no, you guys are better than the rest. So you guys are probably 25%. But let me review. The four points to make sure that you are in the truth. Number one, examine yourself against the spirit of this age. Number two, make sure you're living in the power of God. Number three, examine the life of those who are actually teaching you or speaking truth to you. And number four, make sure you're studying the scriptures closely. Now, just to wrap things up, you know, we're talking about finishing well. You know, to a young person especially, the first thing that comes to mind is like, man, I don't really have to think about that till I was in my deathbed, until I'm 80 years old. Well, the problem is when you're 80 years old in your deathbed, then you start worrying about finishing well, it's too late. How do you ensure that at the twilight of your life that you are good at finishing well? You need to start today. Why? Because you need to develop that culture. You need to develop that character, the skill, the habit of finishing well. That someone looks at you and says, hey, that's a guy who finishes well. We need to cultivate the art of finishing well in every season we're at. Because all of us are in a season, right? We're all finishing a season and going to a different season. And as we've been taught, how you enter a new season okay, is determined by how you finish the last season. So you can work on all these principles of finishing well. Don't wait till you're you're in your 80s or 90s. I don't care you're 15 years old. This is a season you're in right now. Maybe a season finishing up this job. A, finish, a season finishing up the school year. A finish... Uh, 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 whatever season you're in, focus and work on finishing well right now. And as I'm praying, I feel the Lord said this to me. He said, "He said I get it. He said the race, the race is hard. I mean, Christ understood how hard the race is. I mean, this is not like a a, a, a quick run, quick sprint. This is a race for life." He said, "There are times that things are going to be hard. You're going to be hitting a wall." Um, but he said, remember a couple of things. Remember that no power or forces in this world can hold you back from finishing well. No tyrannical government, no demonic forces can keep you from finishing well. Look at Paul. I mean, he's under the greatest demonic regime seen in the history of man. And he, even in prison, is going to finish well. Look at these prisoners in the, in the POW camps in Vietnam. It doesn't matter what kind of adversity is thrown their way. They have the authority to finish well. So we have no excuse to finish well. And sometimes when things get tough, you just need to take one step ahead, one step at a time, one step at a time. I remember when I ran the Indy Mini. I don't like how they call the, the, the half marathons mini marathons because mini implies that it's small. 13.1 miles is not small. So I went through a phase in my life which I ran races because I just thought that's what people did because it's kind of fun. Turns out I'm a terrible runner. I hate running. But I did the, I trained for the Indian Mini because at that time I was trying to impress my fiance. Now it's my wife. And she's a runner. So she's like, I'm like, oh, I'm going to do that with her. Um, last mistake I ever made in that, in that arena. But for me, races are interesting because I'm such a terrible race, I'm such a terrible runner. I learned so many lessons through it. Okay? There's so much drama when I go through a race. It's like all kind of up and down. You know, you talk to Uncle Brent or Dr. Kobos when he runs a race. He's like, I was a race. Oh, it was good. Yeah, I just, you know, ran and finished it, whatever. Like, because he's a runner. You got me, I got all kind of ups and downs and drama and whatever because I just hate running. I'm a terrible runner. Um, but I remember running that, that half marathon and oh, it was just terrible. Um, for some different reason, I mean, I was discouraged left and right. You know, halfway through, I was running with my fiance at the time. I said, "Hey, babe, I'm going to go ahead," and I ran for another like two minutes. I see her tapping on the on the back and blew by me. Um, and then, you know, 
I ran a couple more miles. I was exhausted. I was tired. I was hot. So I said, you know, I'm going to walk a little bit. And once I started walking, I saw someone right next to me, a paraplegic being pushed by someone just blowing by me. I mean, it was like out of a, a comedic show. I mean, it was ridiculous. I'm just thinking, I can't be walking right now. I mean, the guy is on his back and he's blowing by me. So I, mean, I got back up and I started running. And, and you know, it's one of those runs like you're running, but really if you walk, it'd probably be faster than your run. But I just, I just went after her. And as well, uh, another thing happened is, you know, I forgot it's 13.1. I'm thinking it's 13, okay? So I'm just waiting for that 13 marker. I got to the 13 marker. It's almost done. And then point one, I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's so far down. That point one mile could minus be 10 miles. But you know what I did? I, I stopped looking way ahead. I just looked down. I just said, you know what? I'm going to just take one step at a time. One step at a time. One step at a time. And I just want to encourage you, in this race, whatever you're in, you know, sometimes you just got to take it one day at a time. One breath at a time. Oh, man, that was my reality. I feel my lungs going to blow up. One breath at a time. And then when I finish, you know, you finish, you know, most people finish. You finish the race. You know, you're excited. You you know, you go off to the side. You start walking. When I finished the race, I did one of the – finished the race, I just sat down. I mean – you know, I did everything you say you're not supposed to. All the people behind me probably all ran to me and so forth. I didn't care. I finished. There was no more blood going to my head. Uh, everything is constantly in my heart. I mean, I got lightheaded. I sat down. And I sat down for probably five minutes. I wasn't going to get up. I think someone had to move me. But, hey, you know what? I finished. Um, but you know what? The Lord gets it. He doesn't, accept, he doesn't expect all of us to be Superman. But he gets it. He's there with us walking with step by Step by step so we can finish the race. So how many of you guys want to finish strong? Anybody? Anybody? Anybody need some help? You know what? I'm going to close this in prayer. Because um, God knows we need some help. Let's everyone stand up. And let's pray. Father, we just acknowledge, Lord, that this race you have given us is an honorable to race, Lord. It's, 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 it's what life is all about, God. Like, what else can we do for our life that's more valuable than completing the race and the call that you have called us to do? Lord, help us remain in the truth, Lord God. Help us make this life worth it. That when we run this race hard, we are running for the right race with the right finish line, Lord God. Help us, give us a spirit of discernment so we can know where to go. Even when when we get discouraged, we can at least just go one step at a time knowing that you got our backs, Lord. We thank you. We just pray for a blessing for our church and our congregation, Lord, that we know you got our backs and we'll finish strong. We pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen.